welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly, the U.S. announces tariffs on EU wines and spirits. Hong Kong Wine Festival cancelled. Burgundy hit by summer heat. Yields for 2019 are down. And as ever, our Wine of the Week. So before we dive into the week's news, let's talk about our weekend wine. Matthew, what did you do this week? Well, I went to San Francisco to attend an Australian tasting, uh, which was fascinating. There were hundreds of wines to try. Uh, but before the actual tasting, there was a seminar called Cabernet from Coast to Coast, which featured eight Cabernet Sauvignons from across the country. And this is um, a really good tasting. Uh, the seminar guests included Virginia Wilcock of Western Australia's Vas Felix and Stephen Henschke of Henschke in Eden Valley. So quite a prestigious lineup, some of the best winemakers from some of the best wineries in the country. I remember visiting Henschke a couple of years ago. That was a highlight for sure. Yeah, and we visited Vas Felix as well, a very beautiful property. Mm-hmm. And those wines are an absolute delight to return to. Uh, the purpose of the tasting was to demonstrate the regionality of Australia that Australia is a massive country and there are lots of different styles. And it did that very successfully. The wines from Margaret River were elegant and supple. Those are the words of Virginia Wilcock, not mine. She's very um, keen on the word sublime as well. Sublime tannins, she described the wines as having. McLaren Vale was fruitier. Kunawara concentrated with those distinctive menthol aromas. And one of the other topics of discussion was that Australian producers don't charge enough for their wine particularly in comparison to wines from Napa of a similar quality. But I wasn't quite convinced, given that only one of the eight wines we tried cost less than $50, and three of the wines cost more than $100. So those are pretty pricey wines, in my opinion. They are indeed, but was the quality there? Some of the wines were absolutely fantastic. The Henschke wine from Eden Valley was particularly fascinating because it's actually almost too cool in Eden Valley to ripen Cabernet Sauvignon. And that again confirmed the argument that Australia is more diverse than people give it credit for, challenging perceptions that it's just a warm country, producing big, full, ripe, uh, fruity wines. There in Eden Valley, it's actually difficult to get those grapes fully ripe, so it's really on the edge. And then the Vast Felix wine was superb as well. Well, I was sorry to miss this tasting event. I know a lot of our friends and colleagues attended, but I was recovering from uh, another event that happened in Napa. Two events, actually. It was the Wine Industry Technology Symposium and the Wine Industry Financial Symposium. Uh, So they were run in tandem at the CIA at Copia. uh, And Some highlights included uh, measuring and maintaining consumer engagement by Ryan O'Connell, who's the VP of Marketing for NakedWines.com. And I remember him from my days in Dijon when I was doing my master's in wine business. And so it was really fun to see him again. And he shared some really interesting insight because NakedWines.com is really upping the ante these days. Um, So we've talked about them quite a lot in our podcast. Very interesting developments there. True, them with Majestic, but uh, it'll be interesting to see where they go. And there was also a series of keynote addresses. Uh, Opening the second day of the financial symposium was Jim Clerken, CEO of Moet Hennessy. Uh, He's got a fascinating history. And he explained why he thought that despite the challenges, uh, 
there's a good future for wine. And my highlight was Phil Marker, and he's the director of liquor for Albertsons, Vons, and Pavilions. Uh, He discussed trends in wine retailing and how retail outlets can respond to these trends uh, via merchandising, different merchandising approaches, as well as looking at different ways to relate to the consumer, because after all, the consumer and their demands is what drives retail sales. Sounds like you learned quite a lot in these two days, Katie. I did. I highly recommend these events. And talking of consumers, um, today I was guilty of being a very bad consumer. Having worked at wineries, I know how important wine clubs are in California uh, to their markets and just building a consistent sales base. And there are two things which are the bane of a wine club manager. One is having to update cancelled credit cards, which is a lot harder than it sounds. And then the other is um, wine club members who do not turn up to pick up their wine. And I was guilty of that today and turned up at a winery with about two years worth of wine clubs to pick up. And I felt quite um, sheepish. But the winery was Joseph Swan, which has long been one of our favourite California wineries. We used to sell it together in the UK and we loved uh, drinking it together. And it's a really historic one. Joseph Swan set this winery up in the 60s, one of the pioneers of uh, Russian River Valley, and um, is actually a clone of Pinot Noir named after him, the Swan Clone. So we're excited to be, to be members of this wine club, but for some reason, I think it's because it's so close to us, we've just never actually been to pick up our wines. But now we have two and a half cases of Joseph Swan. Yeah, we walked out with all those bottles and it felt like free wine because we'd already paid for it. So it is a small winery and it's not like one of these big, really efficient wineries where they have the wine all stored, ready to pick up. They had to walk around looking for the wines and it took about half an hour to fill up our two and a half cases. But as we were tasting some great wine at the same time, we had no problems with that. And they're dog friendly, so Finnegan got to come along. He loved the Pinots especially. So after that rather extensive summary of our weekend wine, on with the news. So a few weeks ago, we reported on how the U.S. was considering what tariffs to implement on European products, such as wine, whiskey, and cheese. This wasn't directly because of Trump's constant threats to raise taxes on French wine, but because of a years-long dispute between the U.S. and the EU, as the U.S. believed the EU had given Airbus favorable subsidies compared to Boeing. And earlier this year, the World Trade Organization found in favor of the U.S. and imposed a $7.5 billion punishment on the EU. So nothing to do with Trump and nothing to do with wine. Except that this week, the U.S. finally announced which products they were going to increase tariffs on to help raise the funds for the fine, which will come into effect on the 18th of October. And as expected, the products include wine as well as food and cheese. The tariffs will now constitute 25% of the product's value. Included in the list are wines and whiskies from France, Germany, Spain, and the UK. Italy, however, mostly escapes any increase in the tariffs, possibly because it was not involved in the construction of Airbus, but in a more conspiratorial interpretation, because the right-wing Italian government is sympathetic and helpful towards Trump's administration. Likewise, Hungary's populist government found favor with the tariffs as Tokai, the only wine specifically mentioned in the document announcing the tariffs, and misspelt by the way, was declared exempt from the hikes. Also exempt is sparkling wine, including champagne, wines over 14% in alcohol, and packaging over 2 liters in volume. To add to the eclectic confusion, 
liqueurs and cordials from France are exempt, but those from Italy are not, which means the price of Amaro will go up. All in all, it's going to be a bureaucratic nightmare for importers into the U.S. So it's hard not to see this um, as part of the trade wars that Trump is fighting across the world with major economic powers. Uh, for instance, the 25% tariff on scotch can be seen as a direct response to the EU's 25% tariff on US whiskey, which was imposed last year. And all these tariffs do nothing to ease trade relations. So what do you think will be the consequences of these uh, tariff increases? Well, one prediction is that more French producers could be making wine at 14% alcohol or more. Yeah, if the, those wines are not subject to the same tariffs, then bump up that alcohol. Or more bottles of two liters and upwards. I'm all in favor of that. An increase in popularity for Italian wine. Yeah, and that's actually the most um, imported wine into the US. It's giving um, Italian wine a real um, advantage. Hello, more Pinot Grigio. And the prices of California wine might look more competitive. Yeah, California wine doesn't really um, enjoy the subsidies that European wine does, so maybe there'll be more of a level playing field. Or will European producers absorb the costs and we don't notice that much difference in price? Maybe we just won't notice. And th These tariffs come in 18th of October, but it's only wines imported after that date will have, which will have the increased tariffs. It'll be a while before it filters through anyway. Well, time will tell. <laughs> Continuing the political theme, the Hong Kong Wine and Dine Festival was cancelled this week due to the persistent, unstable environment. The chairman of the event, Dr. Y.K. Pang, commented that, quote, It would be challenging to us to ensure the smooth running of the event. The event was due to be held at the Central Harbourfront event space, which is near the government headquarters, the scene of frequent protests. Therefore, the organisers of the festival felt that they could not ensure the safety of people attending the event. The festival first started in 2009, and last year attracted 168,000 visitors, tasting wines from 33 different countries and regions. All exhibitors will get a full refund and receive a 20% discount for next year's event, assuming that one goes ahead. So this unrest is caused by central government interference, and it continues. The might of the Chinese government will no doubt avail, but the unrest certainly threatens Hong Kong's economic power. So how does this affect wine, Matthew? Well, first of all, it caused this event to be cancelled, and 168,000 visitors uh, tasting wine from 33 different countries is a pretty extensive um, festival. Mm -hmm. And Hong Kong has become a hub in Asia for wine buying and consumption, as there's no duty on imported wine. And not only that, many fine wine auctions are held there. So it's a really important um, place to buy wine and to consume wine and to learn about wine as well. So all this uncertainty hits Hong Kong's position in the wine world as well as the financial. Well, so I guess it remains to be seen whether China wants to risk that strong position. <laughs> And in France, Burgundy has had issues in several of the past vintages with low yields, which has led to a shortage of wine available on the market, 2016 being the most extreme example, gone before it was ever seen. And 2019 looks set to be another low-yielding vintage, down by as much as 30 to 40%. The main reason was a lack of rain over the summer, which has led to the reduction in volume. However, quality is set to be high with lots of concentration in the grapes. It's just the wines are once again set to be hard to get. 
It's not all doom and gloom, though. 2018 was a large vintage, and there should be enough to go around. And indeed, the wines may be released earlier than usual. But if the trend in Burgundy continues to be lower yields, there are going to be a lot of disappointed consumers, and prices will no doubt keep on rising. So this can be seen in the high end as well as the low end of Burgundy wines. I know that Producers such as Domaine de la Romaniconti are always hard to get and demand high prices in auction. Uh, so, and counterfeiting also being being an issue. So, I wonder if these low yields will increase that. Yeah, there's a lot of people who want to get their hands on these wines and just won't be able to because they're, they're not available. And so, it's difficult for Burgundy because I think they generally want people to be uh, trying and tasting and drinking these wines. But if there's not enough to go around and demand is so high. Not really sure what they can do. Yes, and climate change doesn't appear to be favorable to Burgundy with the crazy weather patterns that we've seen in past years. So it will be interesting to see where this goes. It's a problem that may not go away. And now, Katie, for our wine of the week, which is... Cathy Corazon Helios 2015. Excellent. So I was very excited um, a few weeks ago when a parcel arrived at my door. Surprise! And within it were six bottles of wine, which I had not ordered. I have no idea where they came from. And they were all um, Cathy Coruscant wines. And you weren't really supposed to open the package yet. It was before your birthday. Well, when I receive mystery packages, I open them. And I was just so excited. And it wasn't till the end of the day that Katie told me that she had indeed ordered them for me for my birthday. Well, I did, because... She's one of our favorite Napa winemakers, or maybe our favorite. Restrained, balanced wines that don't follow the trends in Napa for those huge extracted Cabernets. Uh, Kathy has really pioneered her own style and stuck to her guns. Exactly. She's remained true to it. She's the first female winemaker in Napa uh, in the late 1970s, and then started her own winery in the late 80s. She's a very small woman. But the stories are that she would drive around Napa in her car, personally delivering cases of wine until someone told her that she should hire someone to do that for her. Yeah, a small woman with a big ambition and one that she's followed through to this day. And now she's highly respected around the world. Yep, so this wine is from Cabernet Franc. She's most famous for a Cabernet Sauvignon. And those wines are exceptional. We really like this Cabernet Franc as well. We opened it this week. It's a special post-birthday treat. And it was just so gorgeous, so drinkable and balanced and restrained and fun. And just so elegant and complex as well. And the thing with Cabernet Franc in Napa, a lot more of it's being made. It's actually the most expensive grape in Napa right now. But a lot of it's made like Cabernet Sauvignon. It can taste really big and ripe and full. So it tastes exactly like Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah, and those wines aren't particularly exciting. But this is a much more restrained style, but it's still Napa. It's still California. It doesn't taste like the Loire. It does not taste like the Loire, but nor does it taste like Cabernet Sauvignon. It tastes like a moderate climate Cabernet Franc, which is exactly what it is. Yes, and this wine retails for $100. Yes, I'm that good of a wife in my birthday giving, but it's worth it. Absolutely. When you taste a wine this good with so much aging potential, you understand the price. Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorm. Join us next week for another Wind Up. Cheerio. Cheerio.